Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. Reminder again that Thursday, this Thursday, April 25th, from 6 to 8 at Whiskey 6 in Gross Point, we're going to host a Smart Politics Happy Hour. Nancy Derringer from Deadline Detroit and Sandra Swoboda of Great Lakes Now are going to join me as we listen to you lead the conversation. We're going to have you tell us about the issues that matter most to you. And we're going to take those concerns with us to elected officials and policymakers when we go up to Mackinac Island for the Mackinac Policy Conference at the end of May. So come out and have a beer, have a good conversation. Tell us what's on your minds. Mark your calendar, April 25th, this Thursday at Whiskey 6 in Gross Point from 6 to 8 p.m. All right, up first today, the American Civil Liberties Union turns 100 next year. And to celebrate, the organization is on a nationwide tour that features pop-up interactive exhibitions about voting rights, about immigrants' rights, and about mass incarceration. That tour is coming to Detroit tomorrow, Wednesday, at Cobo Center. And it includes an exhibition for the ACLU of Michigan's Smart Justice Campaign, which aims to cut incarcerations in half in this state. Joining us now to talk more about this anniversary and these exhibitions is Rick Speck. He is the Detroit Smart Justice Field Organizer. He's also somebody who was incarcerated for more than 18 years. Rick Speck, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Yeah, it's really great to have you here. Um, So let's talk first about uh, this exhibition Wednesday at Cobo Center. Uh, What's that all about? So it's an interactive exhibition that is going to uh, showcase what the ACLU has been able to do for the last 100 years to protect folks' civil liberties and civil rights throughout this country. And so there'll be um, different interactive things you can pull up um, on your smartphone. Uh, For example, my op-ed related to bail in Michigan will be one of those things that will you can pop up on your phone and learn more about our work with voting rights, immigration, as well as a smart justice campaign. Yeah, yeah. A um, hundred years. That is remarkable, of course. Take us back to the founding of the ACLU. I'm not sure everyone knows where the ACLU come from. Why did it start a hundred years ago? So, I th- so it started to buy Republican uh, white men mm-hmm. to protect folks from the government's intrusion on their lives. And so we have evolved over this hundred years. It's a little different now. A little right? different, right? <laughs> um, for example, I was hired in July uh, as a formerly incarcerated person on the Smart Justice Campaign. So a part of this, what I like to call the new ACLU to a certain degree, is we're organizing now. We're, we're using grassroots organizing in order to affect change um, with policy And so it was policies and politics that got us into this mess of mass incarceration. So we're going to use policies and politics to get us out of this mess. Yeah. And uh, the ACLU of Michigan, as well as the national ACLU, has really made a turn, I feel like, in the last few years, a hard turn toward this issue of mass incarceration and challenging it uh, where, where you can. Uh, here in Michigan, I feel like uh, the recent suit filed about cash bail, challenging its constitutionality, is part of that campaign as well. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we're, when, when we look at fair bail practices, if bail is there to ensure safety to the community, 
If me and you both have no record, we're both charged with the exact same crime. We go up in front of the judge. We get a $300 bail. You can afford it. I can't. What, what's the, how, how right. is the community safer because you have $300 and I don't? Right? Actually, what we're doing is, is we're working against the community. We're destabilizing it by removing men and women from the community that are there to take care of their elders, to take care of their children, you know, to take care of themselves, to live their best life for example. So what we're saying is, is, is money is not going to determine the safety of our community. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a huge issue here in Southeast Michigan. When you think of the number of people who are sitting in jail, basically because they're poor, right? Yeah. Uh, they, they can't afford to, to bail themselves out. And it's not as if anyone thinks they really should be in uh, in jail, they haven't been to trial yet. They haven't been convicted. They are—they're just poor people who can't afford the bail that was set for them. Who are presumed innocent, right? Yeah, right. Who are presumed innocent. And I think what's kind of staggering is—is is when we look at people that are detained pre-trial, those folks are four times more likely to be sentenced to jail mm-hmm. if they stay incarcerated during their pre-trial. Those jail sentences also tend to be three times longer. And also, last but certainly not least, folks that are detained pretrial are also three times more likely to be sent to prison than their counterparts that are able to fight um, this case from from home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's a fundamental problem between haves and have-nots, right? If we're all equal in, in this system, then clearly with money in play, we're not equal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my guest is Rick Speck. Uh, he is the Detroit Smart Justice Field organi- Organizer, someone who was also incarcerated for more than 18 years. Uh, he is here talking about the 100th anniversary of the ACLU uh, and an exhibit that will visit Kobo tomorrow here in Detroit uh, that will highlight the organization's work on issues like mass incarceration, voting rights, and immigrants' rights. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what you think of the ACLU and its work. How important do you think that is? How important do you think it is right now as we are having some really, really poignant conversations about civil liberties and rights here in uh, not just Southeast Michigan, but in the country? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Uh, you can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. There, there, there was a, a caller who who doesn't seem to have been able to stay on the on the line. Rick, who had a question about defining mass incarceration, and Joe in Dearborn was saying that if people hadn't done anything wrong. They wouldn't be in prison. Uh, that's the kind of attitude I hear sometimes when we talk about mass incarceration. But I wonder if if you could help Joe out uh, and and other people who have skepticism about the idea of uh, of mass incarceration as a as a problem, as a policy problem uh, in our country. Why is that true, and what does that mean? Why is mass incarceration? Uh, a problem? Yeah. Is is it is it a problem? I think what Joe is saying is people who are in jail 
are there because they did something wrong. And so how can you call it mass incarceration uh, from the standpoint of the state or from policy? Isn't it just responding to the crime that's well, out there? I think the paradigm that Joe has is a paradigm that a lot of people share, that if you are, in fact, um, arrested, there must be some level of guilt there. We've gotten away from this whole, you know, guilty until what? <laughs> right? right. And so... The issue is, is for example, I just reposted a story the other day. Young lady, she's she's arrested, she's taken into custody. Guess what? Mistaken identity. She shared the same name as a woman, however, it wasn't her. She tried to no end to to prove this. The reality was, she sat in jail for days. This is um, a twenty-something-year-old Caucasian woman who lost her job. Her children were taken by the state. And then five days later, she's released because, oh, I'm sorry, we made a mistake. Mm. Here's the problem. That happens often. And then secondarily, the problem with mass incarceration is we believe that every violation has to be punitive. We're not looking at what the core and the drivers are of these behaviors. For me, it was always a decision. I made a decision based on my circumstances. If we're not looking at what those circumstances are that caused me to make this poor decision, you know, what are we doing? Then what are we doing? How are we, uh, how are we helping each other? We're all here together in this world to make it a better place. And how do we do that if we're not all yeah. equal? Uh, another way to look at the issue of mass incarceration, of course, is, is numbers. Uh, so despite the fact that we're only 5% of the population on the globe in this country. We have nearly 25% of the world's prison population. Uh, the number of people in jail has grown 700% since the 1970s. We have 2.3 million people in prison or jail today. And then there's also these racial disparities that mm -hmm. play out that are, of course, connected to other racial imbalances in our society, but they play out in the carceral state in really dramatic ways. I mean, uh, black boys are far, far more likely to go to jail or prison, for instance, than white boys, uh, Latino for men, longer and, and for longer sentences, right? So it's not so much about crime and the response to crime. It's about how, who you are, where you're from, what color you are plays into what the criminal justice system does to you or how it responds to you. You know, as, as, as a black and brown people, we, we can rehabilitate just as easily as our Caucasian counterparts, correct? Mm -hmm. However, when, when we look at it, you're right, the, 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 the lens that folks look at, people of color are, for whatever reason, looked at as more volatile, more angry, like... And we both know that's just not the case, right? These these are simply prejudices that have been passed on and on and on, and they become real. And so when folks sit there and think, well, they were arrested, they must be guilty, or, well, if you do something wrong, you have to go to jail. I'm sorry. The thing that made a difference in my life and my three incarcerations, the last one lasting 15 years, was on the last one, somebody actually mentored me and gave me a new set of skills and tools which fundamentally changed the paradigm in which I viewed the world, yeah. which then changed my choices, which changed my behaviors. And so today, as being closest to the problem, also closest to the solution, right? I understand intimately what didn't work for me when I was incarcerated the first time with the state, the second time with the federal system, the third time with the state. Mm -hmm. It was when somebody reached into me to say, guess what? You are a whole person. You know, regardless of my felony conviction, 
you know, I'm a son, mm. right? I'm a husband. <laughs> I'm a father. I'm a grandfather to two beautiful young boys. I have. I'm just as equal as you the next man. You have value beyond what you did and the, the the punishment for it. And we have a really hard time, I think, in this country seeing that, seeing that people who make mistakes, who do things that we consider to be uh, unacceptable, still have lives and value beyond all of those things. It's we, really hard to have that conversation. We still hurt the same, right? Um, we're still subject to all the cruelties of the world regardless of, um, for instance... February 19th, um, my oldest daughter was uh, murdered. Of this year? This year. Oh, wow. I'm really sorry. And um, because I'm a felon, do you think I hurt any less? Because I committed, I have several felonies, do you think that I'm okay with this criminal that took this beautiful human being from me and my family? No, I hurt the same. Do I want justice? Well, sure I do, just like anyone else. But I also know that that person that did this can one day give back and that what he took from my daughter, he owes her Mm. and he can give back and he can make a a difference and make a change and hopefully stop somebody else from committing those same choices. So I look at him, I'm angry, but if I look further, what, what drove this person to commit this horrendous Act. Boy, that is that is a remarkable place for you to be in so soon after something like that happened. I mean, I, I, I hear of people who get to that space and can talk about forgiveness or uh, restoration. I, 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 I don't know how you I don't know how you do that. Uh, I don't think I'm there yet. Yeah. But I do know from being trained as a mediator being trained in restorative justice practices, what I know deep in my my heart is that at some point, yes, I have to be willing to forgive. I, I don't think I'm ready today per se, but I know that that day is going to come. I know that one day they're going to arrest the person that did this, and, and I'm going to have to deal with it even mm-hmm. further. But I also look at it like I don't want this to, to be in vain, for, for my daughter, she had she left a five year old. Wow, wow. Who, uh, you know, my my grandson had his birthday two days before. So when I say this hit us hard, um, it really was. And and honestly, um, through this whole process, I've been treated like a second class citizen and trying to learn the facts that of what happened to my daughter. Um, can I say directly that that's a result of my felonies? I I can't say beyond certainty, but do I get a certain feel? Do I go to the police station once a week to check in because I don't get phone calls back? I absolutely do. Why? Because I'm a whole person. I'm a taxpaying citizen, and I'm here to see that this doesn't happen to somebody else's daughter. That's what my goal has to be today, Hmm. to save. uh, So, Rick, I wonder if you can talk just a little more about what brought you into contact with the criminal justice system. We've been talking sort mm-hmm. of around it, and we've alluded to some of the things. Talk about the 18 years that you spent incarcerated. Well, for me, I was, I was, um, I was a very angry young man and, and, didn't, and had a lot of frustration. I had suffered a lot of trauma, both through uh, alcoholism in my family 
through my parents being divorced from a time that I can't remember them being together. And so for me, um, I turned to alcohol and drugs at a young age to learn how to cope. And so that led to more poor decisions, um, further acting out, um, trying to mask this pain, this hurt. So I continued to reoffend, um, but I was never given the skills and tools to for somebody to say you can be more than two three zero six five seven, right? I'm more than two three zero six five seven. However, before that, I was told that I wouldn't be, and I would always be this, and I would always be that. And so those were self fulfilling prophecies. I fulfilled those. And when somebody else said, you have the power in you to be something great, and I actually believed it and took steps to educate myself, then I became that. And not that I'm great, but I'm working on it, right? We all have greatness within us. And so the ACLU has allowed me to use their platform to share my, my lived experiences, um, share the information I've learned um, through the ACLU, through our training, our deep dives into all of these issues, and so they've been extremely intentional about centering the impacted voices. So not just formerly incarcerated folks, but the family members of formerly incarcerated folks, the loved ones. This affects a community. And when we bring these voices, you know, we can make policies. But why don't we talk to people that these policies affect and allow them to take a step to say, hey, I'm here to help. Right. Um you know, I have to applaud Governor Whitmer and, and Lieutenant Governor Gilchrist on this new executive order that um, she signed mm-hmm. on this task force. And, and I asked a question at that press conference, will there be system impacted folks on this 21 person panel to work on pretrial detention? And so if we read the language in there, she's very specific in having a returned citizen, having um, a crime survivor, all these disenfranchised folks, all these folks whose voices are undervalued and underheard will now have a voice at the table because, as we all know, if you ain't at a, at a, at a seat at the table, you're most likely on, on the menu. Right, and you're getting counted out. Yeah. Uh, again, my guest is Rick Speck. He is the Detroit Smart Justice Field Organizer for the ACLU of Michigan, uh, someone who was incarcerated for more than 18 years. We're here talking about the 100th anniversary of the ACLU and an exhibit at Kobo tomorrow uh, commemorating that 100th anniversary, commemorating the organization's work on voting rights and immigrants' rights and mass incarceration. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's quickly go to Mark in Pontiac. Mark, welcome to Detroit Today. I've got uh, just a few minutes, but I wanted to get you in here. Uh, thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got a uh, question for Rick. Mm-hmm. Uh, those that have the have-nots, the ones that can make that $500 bail get out, and those who can't to go get put in jail, how, how much does that cost the taxpayers every day? to keep that one person in jail until their court comes up? A great question, Mark. I guarantee it's more than the cost of the bail itself, right? <laughs> well, and I'll give you an example. If you're housed in the Wayne County Jail daily, you might as well stay at a hotel that costs you about $185 a day because that's what it costs the taxpayers in the city of Detroit to house folks in the Wayne County Jail, $185 per day. And Three you- days, the 500 is paid. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I mean, you know, there are many reasons to talk about and worry about uh, over incarceration and our reliance on jail and and prison to solve problems. But one of them is, of course, the financial side. And I think that's what Mark is getting at here is that we spend far too much, especially in this state, on 
jail and prison and not enough on some of these other things that uh, that would that would prevent people from getting there in the first place. Yeah, we're just under two billion dollars for our Department of Corrections budget, and that's not entailing our jails, which hold the bulk of our folks. Right. So when you look at one point nine billion dollars. How we can use these resources because there's smart ways. We're not saying that everyone that does commit something just just let them go. That that's not necessarily what we're saying. What we're saying is is there are all these alternatives, and 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 let's treat the symptoms for the addictions, for the mental health issues, for all of these things. Like we're not addressing that. We're a lot. We're further traumatizing the individual, which then further traumatizes the community. When we look at the cost of not only the hundred eighty five dollars for that person to be housed, but when we look at the collateral cost to that person's family when they lose their job housing it's insane yeah okay rick speck detroit smart justice field organizer for the aclu of michigan it was really great to have you here thank you it was a pleasure to be here and be sure to get down to kobo tomorrow to check out this exhibition for the aclu of michigan smart justice campaign which aims to cut incarcerations in half here in Michigan. All right. Up next, we are going to talk with Dream Hampton, the executive producer of Surviving R. Kelly. She has been named to Time Magazine's list of 100 most influential people in the world. She will talk about that honor and the aftermath of the critically acclaimed series. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.